Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Well, happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Oh, thank you, one person. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Yeah, thank you. A few years ago, as I've openly shared, I was sitting in my therapist's office and talking through history and life, and my therapist said to me, do you know the F word? And I'm like, is this a trick question? Are you trying to get a pastor to cuss? I'm, I'm confused. And she said, well, there's a few uh, F words that matter in your journey and all of our journeys. And I'm like, well, I'm confused. So you lead the way, Obi-Wan. What's going on? And she began to remind me, and I think we all know this, no matter our skin color, our ethnicity, our background, or our gender, when we are in a moment of, of fear, when we're in a moment of trauma, when we're in a moment of great change, there are natural embedded sort of reactions we all have. One of them is to fight back. And I was like, oh, fight and flight. Now I know the F words you're talking about. Good. Uh, fight back. When you feel cornered, you want to react. Many other people don't want to fight. They want to run. They want to run as far away as they can from the situation to be safe. And she says, there's a third F word that rarely is talked about but also needs to be recovered. I said, well, what's that? And she said, it's, it's freeze. Sometimes when we're in a moment of panic or trauma or situation, we don't feel we can fight back and we don't feel we can run. We literally just freeze like a deer in the headlights waiting for the car to hit us. As I was reflecting on my own journey and also many of our journeys, it struck me this week as I was preparing to speak to our family, our community this week, that this is actually what the church in Canada looks like these days. It's great, huge, traumatic change is taking place in our country. Many churches are angry and they're fighting back and their fists are up and they're protesting. Many others are running so scared of what's happening to them or to their children or to the future and they're running to the margins trying to make sure to avoid the storm and praying it just goes away. And yet the vast majority of churches are not fighting back or, or, or running for the hills. They are freezing. They are literally seeing this huge freight, tra tra freight train of change coming towards them. And they do not know what they do to do, but they know they're about to get hit. And here's the question I want to begin with today, even on this Thanksgiving weekend. Is there a better way, a more informed way, a more godly way for us to react in this growing time of marginalization? How do you weep and witness at the same time? What does it mean to thrive in exile, to live well in a de-Christian, post-Christian, post-modern, modern, pluralistic, multicultural world? How do we thrive when the Christian faith is less and less affirmed, less and less at the center, more and more on the margins? Like I shared last week, our instinct, naturally, as we've been taught, especially in our culture in the West, is to turn to each other for wisdom. But that's actually not helpful at this moment. We don't have the answers. Many others who are visionaries always want to look to the future to paint the new reality, and though that is an important part of it, that is not our first reaction. We actually are called to do something very countercultural at this moment. We are called to look backwards, not sideways or forwards. We need to look back to the faith of our fathers, back to the faith of our mothers, back to ancient times when the people of God have been in exile, so they and their before can inform us in our now. And that is why we've chosen, that is why God has led us to the book of Daniel. God's people are about to be exiled from their land. The temple that has been built by Solomon is about to be destroyed. And the contents and its people taken into exile, not for 10 years or 20 years. Actually, they are about to be taken for a generation. 70 years is on the line. 
Now, why did this take place? This took place because the people of God who had the word of God and had the presence of God and the understanding of God chose not to listen to him any longer. Now, we're not at wholesale destruction yet. This comes later if you know the biblical narrative. The story, at least the beginning of Daniel, lives between disaster and then full destruction. But the middle is really bad. If you want to hear the pain and the longing of those living in Babylon, enslaved by those who overcame them, all you need to do is turn to the Psalms. Psalm 137, one, by the rivers of Babylon, we, we wept and we sat when we remembered Zion. There on the poplar trees, we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for worship songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy, and they said, sing one of those songs of Zion. How can we sing songs of the Lord while we're in a foreign land? That is the in, encasement, that is the embodiment of what the people of God, the Jews, were experiencing in exile, and this is the story of Daniel. Let me begin where I did last week. The first major invasion has taken place. Another one will come later worse, but this is the first one. And it reads like this in Daniel 1.3. Then the king ordered the chief of his court officials to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians, and the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, enter the king's service. Now, now let me repeat what I said last week to set the table for us today. As modern hearers and readers, we miss the pain of this, the pungency of this. This is political This is about assimilation. This is about ongoing propaganda. The goal is clear here. The Babylonians want to eradicate Jewish theology, Jewish belief, Jewish faith, Jewish custom. It is to get the best and the brightest of the Jewish community and fully assimilate them into Babylonian society. This is intentional, forced seduction. The conversion would be complete when they joined the Babylonian system and thought like Babylonians, or even better, if they went back to the homeland they had been taken from and go and convince those who have been left that the Babylonian way of life was better than the Jewish way of life. This is religious, economic, spiritual, political, sexual, linguistic, and relational transformation and conversation leading to conversion. The goal is to make these young men evangelists for a way of life that is contrary contrary to them. It is a three-year, 24-hour-a-day process. Verse 6, among those who were chosen from Judah was Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Uh, The chief official gave them now new names. Daniel became Belteshazzar, Hananiah became Shadrach, Mishael became Meshach, and Azariah became Abednego. Let me camp here for a moment. Like I shared last week, names matter so much to all of us, including here. All the Jewish names actually connected themselves to the Jewish faith. Daniel meant Israel's God is my judge. Hananiah's name meant Israel's God has been gracious to me. Michelle's name meant who can compare to my God? No one can. And Azariah meant Israel's God is my help. Now listen to the new names. Belteshazzar means may a god or demon protect his life, or even more, lady goddess. Shadrach means I'm fearful of Marduk. Marduk is a demon god where they gave living children into fire and sacrificed them to death. Meshach means I'm despised and humiliated, and Abednego means I'm a slave. 
The names that they are given remove the name of the one true living God and they make other gods and other kings now the center of their life and they are reminded that they are slaves and they are humiliated and they are defeated. Every time their name would be used, they would be reminded they had been conquered. And yet, they got the better end of the stick. They hadn't been murdered or slaughtered or, or, or starved to death in Judah. They were young, they were still good looking, they were smart. They'd now have access to real power, the side benefits of power. And if they moved away from the Jewish faith of mom and dad, who would know? Mom and dad probably had been killed by this moment. And since God had not shown up, and the king's word is law, and compromise seems okay, maybe this is the right thing to do at this moment. I mean, this is how we survive, right? We accommodate for the sake of survival. And then we learned Daniel somewhere between 13 and 20 years old, that's it, began this conversation by saying this, but Daniel resolved. Daniel resolved he would not defile himself with the royal food and and the royal wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now, why did Daniel and his friends reject the keg? I mean, this is a pretty good deal. This is really, really good food. Well, number one, we learned that this food had been dedicated to idols and demons, and as an Orthodox observant Jew, he would not do it. Second of all, this is not kosher food, and according to the God's word in Leviticus, he is not allowed to participate. So he says no to that, but then why not the wine? I mean, the wine is not unclean, and we began to discover what Daniel is doing is as a table is being set in front of him, he's setting another table where he's going, I will not be seduced by the very good thing in front of me that actually roots itself in evil. Daniel trusted in the sovereignty of God. Daniel made God's written word central. Daniel knew God would have the final say. And Daniel, quite calculatingly and courageously, decided to obey God over the king. But what we cannot read into this, that some of you probably already have, is it's not revolt all the time. It's not countercultural living at every single moment. See, what we did not get into last week, and by the way, whether you're seeking here and you're not a Christian yet, you're an outright skeptic, you're a new Christian or long-term, no matter where you're coming from today, you've got to listen to this because it will help you understand the Christian faith. What we did not get into last week was that the prophet Jeremiah was inspired by the Spirit of God to write a letter to those now in exile And I want everyone to lean in on this Thanksgiving morning to listen to the call of God to his people. Protest alone, countercultural alone, on the margins alone, monasteries, hiding from everyone. No. God says some stunning words. I, God, have placed you, Israel, in Babylon, and now I want you to flourish even though you're scared. Jeremiah 21.4. This is what the God of angel armies says. The God of Israel says to those, notice God says that I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is my hand. He says, build houses, settle down. Oh, plant gardens, eat what they produce. Marry, have sons, daughters. Find wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage so they too will have sons and daughters. Increase there, do not decrease. Also seek the peace and the prosperity of the city which I, God, have carried you into exile. And pray to me, pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you also will prosper. You're called to be sight, salt, and light in culture. And amazingly, shockingly, he says this, well, you are in exile. Well, everything around you scares you. I want you to increase in number, not decrease. Love the city you're in, God says. 
Be part of the city you are in. Have families. Go to work. Be people of peace. Love your enemies. Join the city. Be of the city, but not fully of the city. Pursue our normal way of life, knowing deliverance in the end will come. But then he says shocking things that bring this very close to us. He says, don't just be a good citizen. Don't just pay your taxes. Don't just smile in the Tim Hortons line. No, no. Pray for the city. What? Can you hear the Jews talking back to God? You want me to pray for the Babylonians? You know, the city that invaded us. You know, the city that came and tore the temple to the ground and burned your place. You want me to pray for the city that makes me try worshiping demons and idols? You want me to pray for those who are trying to change my name and humiliate me? You want me to pray for those that killed off my family and my friends? You want me to pray for those who took me from my homeland and I will never get to see and maybe my children won't either? You want me to pray for wickedness? You want me to pray for a city that kills and overcomes? Oh, Oh, God says, absolutely. And then he says, and oh, by the way, don't pray wrong prayers. Don't like, oh, God, go get them. Mm. Oh, God, give them what they deserve. Bring down the fire. No. He says something so shocking. He says, pray for peace. Now, the word peace in Hebrew is the word shalom. And it's not just some greeting. It means healing, wholeness, and deliverance. God says to his people in exile, you pray that my power and my healing and my love show up in darkness and bless your enemies because if I bless your enemies, I'll bless you too. Daniel, here's the summary. Don't divorce yourself. Dive in. Six million people live within an hour from here. Most multicultural city on earth 150 plus heart languages spoken every day, sexually diverse every direction. Every religion is functioning and worshiping here. Muslim, Hindu, Baha'i, Sikh, witch, black and white, Buddhist, Jew, the list goes on and on. Spiritualism, agnosticism, atheism, passive and aggressive are found at every one of our family tables. Our city is creative, artistic. It is the engine of our economy, banking, fashion, trade, fast-paced, intense, vibrant, global. And here's the question. How do we as followers of Jesus live in a city like that? How do we live now in the new Canada? And God says to us, stop panicking. Why are you growing suspicious? Why are you viewing your neighbor as your enemy? Do not be marked by the growing anger and culture. Do not give in to the social media rage that is now marking the culture. Do what Daniel did. He protested when he needed to, but he loved and he served with a clear conscience before God. And when Jeremiah gave that word, he obeyed it. Now you see this as we keep going in Daniel 1. Verse 9, it says, Now God, I love when that's in the Bible, Now God caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. God's in, God's in control. Like I said, God's not walking upstairs, oh my goodness, Canada, what we're gonna do, all these churches, Gabriel, any idea? No. From the arc of human history to redemption in time to this little situation, God is working, and in this moment, God decides to sovereignly allow Daniel's boss to like him. Oh, who's his boss? Oh, his boss is a demon worshiper. Oh, who's his boss? Oh, this boss works for the king that destroyed his nation, ripped off his family, and enslaved him. That's who his boss is. Some of you have bosses like this. Take heart. God can even change their hearts. So it says the official told Daniel these words, I'm, I'm afraid of the Lord my king. We're all afraid of the king. 
He's assigned you your food and drink. Why should he see you look worse than all the other young men of your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Well, that's not metaphor. He's literally saying, if you don't obey, I'm gonna have my head chopped off and you will too. So Daniel, at this moment, understands that God's word and the king's word are in conflict. And the boss says, I respect you guys, I'm gonna help you guys, but our lives are on the line. So now Daniel, with such God-given wisdom, this is what he knew. This was not a picketing moment. Well, I don't agree. I'm gonna show these pagans who's in charge. You're so wrong. Don't you know my rights? I'm gonna write my MP. Shh, nothing. Daniel does this. Daniel says to the guard, not even to the chief official, who had appointed, Dan, appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah. Please test your servants just for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat their royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. Okay, number one, I did not catch this 100 readings over, ready? Did you notice, because I didn't, that the Jewish names are used here, not the Babylonian names. Why? Because here's what we are hearing from God. Even if your name has changed, and even if everything's wrong, God is still judge. God is still gracious. God is still above and beyond all. No one can compare to God, and God is my help. In other words, these names are invoking the presence of God. And Daniel says, listen, we trust in God, and so we're going to do something to you, guard of the great chief who represents the king. We would like to become the gospel to you. We'd like to become the good news to you. We'd like to become the demonstration of our God to you. So would you do something? We would like you to only test us just for 10 days and we're gonna ask an impossible thing and we're gonna guarantee you that we're gonna look better, feel better, and be stronger than all the other young men we're in competition with. Now let me just do a little side note here because it's important. This passage has been terribly misused by Christians. This is not a call to become a vegan or a vegetarian. No, I got to do this. If you're a vegan or vegetarian, God bless you. All the hugs, sincerely. It's great. But just so you know, they eat meat later, so you don't win this one. So, what is happening here? Are they saying, well, keg food's really bad because it's got fat? No. Here's what's happening. Understand, Daniel is doing something. He is setting up an impossible situation with no resources, so either God shows up and he gets all the glory and he evidences himself as God, or God doesn't show up and they have to compromise their faith. In other words, he's placing himself in the corner to prove God is God. Now notice how Daniel talks. Polite. He says, please. Would you consider? Notice what he's not saying. Well, you stupid pagan. Don't you know who I am? This is my right. No, see, gentleness and respect. Let me give you an example. One, a Sri Lankan pastor actually used this years ago preaching on this. He says, uh, imagine if you don't smoke, maybe some of you do, but if you don't smoke and someone offers you a cigarette, you can say no in two very different ways. Uh, would you like uh, a cigarette? No, thank you. I don't smoke. You also could respond, smoke, me smoke. Are you stupid? Are you trying to give me cancer? I don't want your death sticks in my mouth. Are you trying to kill my children? I hate you. Is this a suicide attempt? Do you want my doctor's number? Get out of my face. Do you see the difference? No and no. But what's the difference? The attitude. We have a lot of people, Christians, over here right now. 
At the end of 10 days, God showed up. They looked healthier and better, more nourished than any of the other young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and their wine to drink and gave them vegetables and said, I'm sure they were so popular with the other boys that week. Now this makes sense of verse 8. It's not just Daniel and his friends saying no because of idolatry or unclean food. See, as one scholar pointed out, what's really happening is something so much deeper than most of us were never taught if you grew up in church. Here's what's going on. Who gets the coming praise for the success of these young men? The king, his table, his food, his education, his gods, or Yahweh, the true living God. Daniel makes a countercultural decision and declares this. Let's step out in such a profound, public, dangerous way that either we totally fail and compromise or God steps in and does the impossible. And God does the impossible. And he doesn't just do the impossible in 10 days. It keeps going. In verse 17, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds, literature and learning, and Daniel could also understand dreams and visions of all kinds. For the third time, it says in the passage, God gave, God's involved, God is aware, it's his story, it's gonna keep going. And notice that God moves in the natural and the supernatural. It says that God blesses these teenagers with incredible learned and natural abilities. In other words, in Hebrew it reads, they became great at science, at literature, and languages. But not only were they like amazing university students, it also says Daniel has the ability to interpret dreams and visions. Okay, another side note, everyone lead in. Witchcraft and God's work almost all the time look the same. You're like, I'm sorry, I didn't hear to expect to hear that on Thanksgiving. Let me work this out. Visions, dreams, healings, tongues, demons, deliverances, auras. Listen, all the weird stuff is weird. But the question for us is not, is it weird or not? The question from the Bible and for Christians is, what is the source of the weirdness? And what is the result of the weirdness? See, the demonic and God, much of the time, do supernatural things, but it is the fruit that evidences where it comes from. Freedom or seduction, God's glory or demonic worship or human pagan worship. Again, the starting point is not, is it uncomfortable or strange? It is about who is inspiring what is, we're seeing in front of us. So Daniel is actually given learned abilities, natural abilities, everyone ready, and spiritual gifts. Have you heard this before? And amazingly, he has done this because he's about to evidence to the king who God is. And never forget, the vast majority of people around the world, when they encounter the true living God through Jesus, they encounter him through experience first and intellect second. So God himself endows natural and supernatural moments in these young men. It says at the end of three years, Set by the king, he brought them into his service. The chief official presented each one of them to Nebuchadnezzar. And the king talked with each one of them and found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in the whole kingdom. And Daniel remained in the service there until King Cyrus. This is such a needed story for us. Thriving and exile is possible like Joseph in Egypt, like Daniel in Babylon, God has not left the building and God has not left our country called Canada. Oh yeah, we can be out of sync with culture and yet we can be out of sync and stand and stay all at once. We can bring wisdom in an age of folly. So C4, here's the question. Is this a time of protest and resistance or is this a time of transformation? And the answer is yes. Sometimes we will be called as Christians to stand against culture and sometimes we will be called to transform culture from within. 
We are called to be in the world, but not of the world. So what do we do? What do we learn from Daniel? Not just for us personally in our own journeys. What do we learn as a corporate community, as C4, and not only that, as the church in Canada? Well, let me start the end where I ended last week. Number one, the sovereignty of God is stronger than any king or any massive change or any decline. God's blessing and presence is not geographically restricted. The way you live your life in real freedom, the way you are not washed away from fear, remember, perfect love casts out fear. The way that we're not washed away, the way we choose not to compromise, the way we thrive in exile is that we love and we confess and we live believing the truth that this is God's world. God is not just the creator who walked away, he's the creator who's still involved. And when things change all around us, God's still in charge. And in the end, your family doesn't have the last say, your enemies doesn't have the last say, the government doesn't have the last say, the university professor doesn't have the last, God has the last say. God has the last say. And he will make all things right. Sovereignty is the underpinning to faithfulness. All the way back at the beginning, when God encountered Abram and called him Abraham, by the way, a moon-worshiping person who he converted to himself, when he made a covenant, a marriage agreement, was he saying, you know, I, I like Jewish people and the rest not so much? No. Listen very carefully to why God chose Abraham and then the Jewish people. It says this in Genesis 12 too, I will make you Abraham into a great nation. I'm going to bless you, God says. I'm going to make your name great. You're going to be a blessing and all the people on earth will be blessed through you. Even in the time of Daniel, when all seems lost, God sovereignly placed his people in the darkest part of the world so the Babylonians could see God through his people. God has placed you in Canada. Do not forget it. Whether you immigrated here or you were born here. God has placed you in this season, in this generation, in this time. And this is why we are placed here. We are placed here to show that there is a better way and there is a loving God. Fight and flight and freeze is not our answer. Pray, play, plan, and peace. That is what we're called to do as a community these days. Sovereignty. Here's the second thing. When you have to protest as a Christian, in Jesus' name, Remember whose name you're doing it in and do it well. Don't you see what Daniel did? See how he did it. This has always been the model for us. Here's generations later, Peter said it like this near the end of his life. First Peter 3.14, but if you should suffer for what right is right, you're blessed. Oh, oh don't fear their threats. Don't, don't be frightened. Put your, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always prepare to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good rather than doing it for evil. God says, listen, C4, I know it's scary that people mock you now. I know that you're different now. I know when people outright attacking you for loving Jesus or saying he's the only way or actually believing what the Bible teaches, don't fear their threats. Don't be consumed by fear. You know who wins in the end, right? You know I'm watching, right? He says, make the decision. Focus your eyes on Jesus. Not just confessionally, not just intellectually. Know him. 
Jesus is Lord, Jesus is God, Jesus is in control, Jesus is alive, Jesus is love, and Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father, and he will come back and he will judge the living and the dead. Choose Jesus even if you must suffer. Oh, be willing to speak up for Jesus, yes. Confess your allegiance about Jesus, yes. Fearlessly talk about the good news, yes. Tell people if you're suffering why you are. But when you speak, be meek, be respectful, obey the law. Don't be a donkey in Jesus' name. Don't be a jerk. Don't be prideful. Don't be brash. Don't be aggressive. Don't go online and rage in Jesus' name. Much of the raging we see is about our own insecurity, not about being right. Daniel shows us the best of ways. Be willing to suffer if you're called upon and know that that suffering moment is a guaranteed place of encounter. But when you stand and choose not to defile yourself, even with family or friends or at work or with the government, when you do it, make sure the person who is watching you says, but they were gentle and they were full of respect, even if they're not gentle towards you. Here's the third thing. We are called to stand and at the same time love and at the same time live within the city and the country we've been placed. Here's the temptation for us at this moment in 2018 as Christians. Isolation, hating our neighbors, suspicious of our friends, resenting where our country is going and what our country has become and longing for some golden age, which by the way, if you talk to anyone who lived there, it wasn't there anyway, but anyway. You wanna thrive in exile? Pray for the city, join the city, be part of the city, if you want to know what the faith of our fathers are, just listen very closely as I end to Paul, Peter, Daniel, and Jesus. Paul was writing during the time of Nero. If you want to ever read about cray-cray, this is the guy. Dangerous, violent, sexually abusive, domineering, a murderous, torturous, crazy man. And this is what Paul writes to Christians living in Rome. Romans 3, 7, 13, 7, give everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, you pay taxes. By the way, if you're a Christian and you're not paying your taxes, repent. You are supposed to be the model citizen in this community. If revenue, if you owe someone money, you give them money. If you owe someone respect, then respect. If you owe them honor, then honor. Peter put it this way during the same time period in 1 Peter 2.13. You submit yourself for Jesus' sake to every human authority. Emperor as supreme authority. Governors who are sent to punish those who do wrong or commend those who do right. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the church. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Now Daniel, Paul, and Peter are not naive about family abuse, friend abuse, or government abuse. Every one of them have experienced verbal, physical, or worse, abuse because they are followers of God. They have all been systematically abused and isolated by the government. They know that behind many powers there are spiritual forces that are even hostile to God himself. And yet they still say you can honor the emperor and love the church. So then you ask the question, if you are a Christian today, not all of you are, but if you are one, well, is there ever a time I can disagree with my family or my friends or my workplace or the government? Yes, on rare occasions, we will have no choice but to obey God first. Now, never forget, the Bible never shares which form of government is best. You'll never find it in, in like third perversion 16.9. Oh, democracy, God's gift, not in there. You'll never ever see in here what to do during revolt. But this is what he does tell us. There are two times when Christians are allowed to say no. In meekness, I say no to you. Number one, if anyone in your life tells you that you must break God's law, 
then you simply kindly say, I will not do that. God is the final say, not you. Daniel was resolved not to defile himself. If the Bible is clear, then we obey God, not family, not country, not anyone, because in the end, we worship God and no one else. Jesus is Lord, no one else. The other time that you can disagree is if you are informed by Scripture, the Spirit of God, and your conscience. I don't know if you've done church for a while, but you'll realize that not all of us as Christians agree on everything. Would you like to say amen to that? Mm, Yeah, mm, it's true. Yeah, okay, so the Bible is not clear on everything. Adultery is always wrong. Stealing is always wrong. Pacifism and war, mm, not so clear. Some Christians say we should never take up arms. We are in the way of Jesus. That is absolutely wrong. I will never do that. Fine. Other Christians say, no, I hate war. I hate violence. But sometimes when things are so dire to guard innocent people, we should take up arms. In other words, is it right to resist Hitler or is it not in Jesus' name? And the Bible is not clear But wherever you land on the moment of conscience, that is when you can say no. Joseph, Esther, Daniel, and Peter show us that we can remain faithful to God, uncompromised in biblical conviction, and still love the cities we are in, even though it's difficult. We need profound discernment at this moment in our country and wisdom how to do this right and not mess up this great God-given moment for witness. And so we should end today with actually the founder of our movement and his manifesto, Jesus. In the Sermon on the Mount, here's what Jesus said. You are the salt of the earth. Oh, not Jesus, you. Uh, If the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's not good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. Now, in ancient times, salt was currency. It was valuable. Why? Well, it flavors things just like we use it for. But there was something that they did not have that we all take for granted. It's called a refrigerator. And so everything was doused in salt to be preserved. And here's what Jesus is teaching. You, your literal living God-given presence in a family, in a community, in a region is salt. You bring flavor and you preserve so decay does not take over. Wow. But you can't be salt if you're not in the meat or in the vegetables. You can't say, well, I'm going to be salt over here on the, you know, I'm over here in the kitchen. I'm salt. I'm salt. And the meat's like, I'm rotting. Well, I don't care. I'm salt. No, you've got to be in the thing to work. It's the same thing where he keeps going, you're the light of the world. Amazing. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, declares us broken, screwed up Christians the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it in a bowl. Instead, they put it out on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, Christian, let your light shine before some people, Christian people, no, all people, so they'll see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. If you're a Christian, pay your taxes. If you're a Christian, love your neighbor. If you're a Christian, volunteer in the community. If you're a Christian, have a barbecue and invite a neighbor over and get to know them. If you're a Christian, serve in Jesus' name. If you're a Christian, Christian, love the poor, pray, share the good news of Jesus, be salt and light, because when we're salt and light, we prevent decay, we bring light into darkness, it is spiritual conflict, every time a Christian does anything in Jesus' name, it is defyingly saying to the kingdom of darkness, your kingdom lost and our kingdom won. 
Every single time you love the poor, it is saying to the devil, no more. Every time we rescue someone out of slave trafficking, we are saying, you don't win anymore. Every time we share the gospel, we're declaring that resurrection is true and death doesn't win. Good deeds are the way we demonstrate the faith that we have. And what will happen? People will say, why are you different? And you won't say, well, you don't know who I am. You'll be going, Jesus. And they will praise the Father in heaven because of you. So we have to resolve and wrestle down our view of sovereignty. We have to decide that we're willing to lose our jobs if the government or the school system or your family says, well, just fudge the numbers. If you're gonna keep your job here, you need to lie. No, and you're gonna have to trust God in that moment. We all are gonna make the decision not to run, not to be suspicious, not hate the prime minister or our MPs or our mayors or fill in the blank or our neighbors or certain communities we don't get along with. No, no, we are called in for the long haul. God placed us in Babylon for a reason. But here's the last thing and the most important. Daniel, as a teenager, never underestimate teenagers. Daniel, as a teenager, sets up a scenario that's a no-win situation unless God shows up. 10 days just water and green beans and watch God work. Why do I bring this up? (laughs) Oh, because we're now here. You might not feel it because you're in this church and there's 3,000 people and there's lots of staff and we're large. This is not normal. We as a movement in our country are now here. Who's going to show up and do something that actually is above and beyond our ability? When I talk to pastors all across the country, doesn't matter. They can be collar-wearing, robe-wearing, speaking in tongues, bells, irrelevant. When I hang out with all those who are confessionally Christian from every background, every single pastor is sitting quietly going, we're not sure what's about to happen. They just don't know. And here's what I want to say to you. In this moment of collapse and impossibility, When we are finally admitting as leaders in the church that everything we've been using isn't working anymore, now God can move. Now God can move because now we're going to have to say as a church, either you show up or we're done. Now we're living this as a church. Are you joking me? Like just write a a vision statement? Really? A regional church of 10,000 meeting the physical, emotional, and spiritual needs of people in Jesus' name? That's the most idiotic, stupid thing any pastor could ever say in Canada. This isn't Texas. This is Toronto. God, show up or we're done. But not just that, deeper than that. Our whole movement is now in this place where there's such desperation happening that people are now starting to say to God, could you show up in 10 days and change the world? God answers desperate, honest prayers of his people. Don't be afraid. God has not left the building. God has not left our country. God has placed us here to be salt and light. And there may not be gentleness and respect shown to us, but Jesus is our model. Jesus was silent before his accusers. Jesus did not go on Facebook and on Twitter and rant. He blessed his enemies. Jesus did not give or show us that we give our life to the left or the right politically. He showed us the kingdom of God is what matters in the end. So on this Thanksgiving weekend, could we do this? No matter what site you're at, could we just pray?
that actually this sermon would become real for us. So let's pray this. Number one, Lord, as a whole community, number one, we pray that we would really believe in your sovereignty. Really. Some of us are so consumed by fear, we just don't believe, God, you're going to do this. We're asking, Lord, begin to work out sovereignty. Number two, some of us are realizing, as I've been speaking, that we might lose our jobs or we're going to have to stand or talk to family and friends. Lord, give them courage. Help them to do it with gentleness and respect. Third of all, Lord, at this moment, we're going to pray, help us to stay in the city well, to love the city, to pray for the shalom of the city, to not walk away from our neighbors and our friends, but to increase, not decrease in this moment. Help us to protest well and to live well and to love well. But here's the real prayer. Holy Spirit, take us to Jesus. Jesus, take us to the Father. God, unless you show up, we're done. We're done. So we are asking as a church again for such a move of God's spirit in our church and in our region and in our country that we will have to say God did it and we didn't. Come, Lord, and bring light into Babylon. Save our neighbors and our friends and our enemies. Do the impossible. Do the impossible. Help us to thrive in exile. Help us to be salt and light. We're asking for not hundreds or tens, but thousands and tens of thousands, all the way from Victoria, right across all the way to Newfoundland, all the way up to the Yukon, and across. Lord, tens of thousands were asking to become followers of Jesus Christ because you sovereignly acted. Hear our prayer in this moment, in this time. Come, Holy Spirit. Come. Amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.